Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, friends. Good to see all of you this morning. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer, because what we sung is true, that we need the Lord every hour, and we definitely need him now as we look to his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do come to you as sinners in need of what only you can do for us. We come as sinners in need of what only Christ can provide for us. And so we do pray that you would come and minister to us by your Holy Spirit as we consider the truth of your word this morning. And we pray, as many saints have prayed before us, that what we know not, you would teach us, what we have not, that you would give us, and that what we are not, you would make us. And we pray all of that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So this is a topical sermon series. For those of you who are a little bit newer with CBC, maybe it's your first time, maybe you've been here just a few times. What we normally do is preach our way through books of the Bible. I'm taking a break currently from a series in Mark's Gospel. We'll be resuming that series on December the 29th. So if expositional, sequential preaching through books of the Bible is your thing, just hang on for another couple of Sundays and it will be back. We do about one topical sermon series per year. And we trust uh, that those have been helpful and fruitful for the church. So we are in the third of four sermons in a series entitled All Who Are Weary. The first week, we thought about the fact that our lives are difficult often. And that if we are honest, we don't always like our lives. We looked at Psalm 73 together to consider the very honest, almost jarringly, breathtakingly honest words of Asaph the man who penned that song. Last week, we considered essentially the reality of weariness, how living in a fallen world results in us being weary for a whole number of reasons. And we rejoiced in the rest that Christ alone provides for his people. Today, the title of the sermon is The Internal War. We're going to be thinking together from Galatians 5 and primarily Romans 7 about the internal war that is our new reality as Christians. This is something that without doubt produces weariness because we constantly are battling against our own sin. We're battling against our flesh and that war is often taxing on us. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about together today. The verses that we're going to look at in Romans 7 are some of the perhaps most relatable verses in the entire Bible. I said that about Psalm 73. I'm saying it again today. I didn't say the most. I did some of the most, right? Because we're going to read these. And it's like, man, Paul, you've been reading my mail, bro. Like you're saying exactly what I think and feel and experience every day of my life. There is a phrase that came out of the Reformation. In Latin, it reads, simul justus et peccator. It means in English, at the same time, justified and sinner. Or we could even say simultaneously saint and sinner. Contra the doctrine of the medieval church, we are not becoming saints. We're not working to become saints. We are righteous. We are saints in Christ by faith. And at the same time, we are still sinners. This is our reality. It sometimes blows our minds, breaks our brains, and it breaks our hearts as well. But such is 
our existence now in the already and not yet. The kingdom of God on earth has been inaugurated with the coming of Christ, but it is yet to be consummated. And we live in the in-between. This truth of simul justus et peccator, at the same time justified and sinner, is one of the most important biblical principles for your pastors here at CBC in terms of how we think about pastoral ministry, in terms of how we think about relating to one another as elders, but also relating to one another in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one of the most important biblical principles for all of us as we seek to understand the Christian life. We will not understand the Christian life unless we wrestle with this reality. It matters for ourselves individually, but it matters very much for all of our relationships, in particular within the body of Christ. So listen with that in mind as we consider these truths together today. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. We're going to open them up first to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. We're going to look at Galatians 5.17 briefly, and then we're going to make our way to Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry about that one bit. We will have the verses that we're going to be considering up on the screen for you to follow along that way. So listen now to Galatians 5.17. We're going to make a few brief observations here, and then we're going to make our way over to Romans 7. Paul writes in Galatians 5 and verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Paul, of course, is talking about the Christian life, walking in the spirit. He's going to be talking about works of the flesh and fruit of the spirit. But he makes this most important statement and observation about our reality as Christians. Three big things to observe in Galatians 5.17 that will set the table for our conversation. Number one, observation one, is that the Spirit, and by the Spirit we mean the Holy Spirit of God, and our flesh are opposed to each other. The Holy Spirit of God and our flesh are opposed to each other. This is clear enough. doesn't require a lot of work from me. God the Holy Spirit is opposed to our corrupt nature in Adam, that corrupt nature that we inherited from our first parents, that we are all born with that we all still carry around with us. The Holy Spirit is opposed to that. Second observation from Galatians 5.17. In describing this internal conflict, this internal opposition, the collision that's happening in your heart and mind, Paul is clearly talking about a Christian, a believer. Okay. What else could be the case? Just reason together for a moment. Only Christians have the Spirit of God in us. Only Christians have the Spirit of God taking up residence within us. And so for the Spirit of God to be at war with our flesh means that the Spirit is in us. In other words, we are redeemed, regenerate, born again in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is then waging war against our flesh. So only Christians know this experience of the internal war. Only Christians know this experience of the Holy Spirit in them battling against their own corruption. It's unique to people who have been born again. This kind of conflict could not exist in a person who is not in Christ. This kind of conflict could not exist in a person who has not been born again. I trust that's clear. Third observation. This internal war, Paul says verbatim, 
the reality of your own corruption and sin keeps you from doing the things you want to do. You, you see it right there in the text. These are opposed to each other, the spirit and the flesh, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is not the only place that Paul writes this way. He also writes this way in Romans chapter 7. So go ahead and flip over. I'll give you just a moment to do that. We're going to be looking today at Romans 7, 13 through 8, 4. So Romans chapter 7 and verse 13 through chapter 8 and verse 4. And consider what the Apostle Paul writes there. Again, those verses will be up on the screen. I'm not going to read this whole text. Our brother James read it earlier for us. What we're going to do is just take a verse or so at a time, make some comments and some observations. And then after we've considered Romans 7 together for a while, I'm going to reflect on what this means for our lives with four brief meditations and reflections. So that's the plan for the rest of our time. Put your eyes on Romans 7.13. Paul asks the question, did that which is good, namely the law, bring death to me? He answers that question. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, God's law is good and God's law is not the problem. Sin in us, our corruption, is the problem. God's law exposes sin. That's the primary and first use of his law is to show us our sin. It's that great mirror. We evaluate ourselves in the mirror of God's law. And it becomes very obvious very quickly that we do not meet the standard, right? The law exposes sin. And it exposes sin in such a way that it's clear that we are sinful beyond measure. Put your eyes on verse 14. For we know, Paul says, that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. This is true of all of us in Adam. Our corruption is great. So often in the church today, we underestimate how sinful we are. We sell sin short in that we'll talk about sin as an act of disobedience, an immoral thought or whatever, but it runs much deeper than that. Like David says, we are conceived in iniquity and our sin is ever before us. God saw that all the thoughts and the inclinations of man's heart was only evil continually. Our corruption runs deep. This is our natural fallen state as human beings born in Adam. Now, as we head into verse 15, now begin some of those most relatable verses in all of Scripture. One note before we even get into verse 15 you will notice that Paul, and by verse 15, I'm going to mean everything that comes after that as well. You will notice that Paul is going to make some distinctions. He's going to make distinctions between himself and his flesh. He's going to make distinctions between his inner being, his inner man, and his flesh. He's going to make distinctions between himself and the sin that dwells in him. Paul is born again in this text, as he's writing. He's just been writing about our union with Christ by faith in chapter 6 of Romans. Our new identity, right? Our new reality. We have been set free from the dominion of sin. We are in Christ now. 
We become obedient from the heart. We are not under the law anymore, but under grace. He writes about all of those things. Paul is born again. He is indwelt by the Spirit of God in his inner being. He writes as a man in Christ. I mean, that even, if you look at Romans 8, 1, how this flow of progression of thought works, it's clear that he's writing about people who are in Christ Jesus. There is in Paul's mind and in his thinking, there is the new man and the old man. The new man is the new creation in Christ, think 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And then there is the old man in Adam. He even uses that language explicitly in his letter to the Romans as well. Chapter 5 and other places. There is the spirit and there is the flesh. This fits with the biblical witness and things that Paul has written in other places. So now let's put our eyes on verse 15 as we have those distinctions in mind. Paul writes of himself and his own experience. I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Just another sort of apologetic for the fact that Paul is writing as a Christian. If Paul is not a believer, to talk about wanting to do God's law and wanting to do good makes no sense. To actually experience this conflict, we thought about this a minute ago from Galatians 5, to experience this conflict where there are things that I want to do in obedience to God's word, but I don't do them. To even experience that at all is the reality of a Christian, not of a person who is not trusting Christ. So Paul says, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. He's talking about obedience to God's law, the things that he wants to do but doesn't. And then he's talking about his sin, the things that he hates to do but does. And everybody in the room is thinking, my goodness, he is talking about my experience like every day of my life. This is what I go through. This is what I feel in my mind and in my heart, in my body. I want to do good things according to God's law, but I don't find myself doing those, at least not nearly as much as I want to. And I don't want to sin. And yet I find myself doing that far more often than I want to. Verse 16. Paul goes on. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. If I'm wanting to do what the law says, I am saying that the law is good. The law is right, in other words. I'm saying when I hear God's law, yes, that's right and that's good. And I want to do that. Verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It is not Paul as he stands in Christ in his inner being who does these sinful things. It is indwelling sin. It is sin that dwells in him that causes him to do them. Our sinning never comes from the Spirit of God within us. That's obvious. Our sinning comes from the flesh, from the corrupt nature that we still carry around. Verse 18. There is nothing good that dwells in our flesh. If there was any question about is there anything good in me naturally, the answer is no. For I have the desire, again, now as he's talking about I, he's talking about his inner being. I have the desire to do what's right, but then I don't have the ability to carry it out. I have the desire to do what's right, but not 
the ability to carry it out, said all the redeemed of all time. Verse 19. Paul continues on in this train of thought. For I do not do the good I want. He reiterates this reality. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I don't do the good that I want to do. And I keep doing the bad stuff that I don't want to do. We read that and we're like, Paul, you're talking about me, man. You're writing to me. This is how God's word is. It diagnoses what's going on with us. Verse 20. He says, now, if I do not do, excuse me, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's a reiteration of the fact that it is sin within that produces wicked action. It is our corrupt nature that produces sinful behavior. It is our fallen flesh that causes us to sin. Paul says, if I do what I don't want to do, like Galatians 5.17, the war within, the flesh warring against my spirit causes me to do things that I don't want to do. It's no longer me that's doing it. It's sin. It's the old man. It's my corrupt nature. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Notice he says that it's a law. What's true of a law? A law is true all the time. It's true all the time that when I want to do good, evil is always close. This is Paul's constant all the time experience. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, said all the redeemed of all time. This is the great paradox, right? This is the great tension of our existence. This is true for every believer in this room, that we delight in the law of God in our inner being. But then in verse 23, Paul tells us about another law. He sees in his members another law waging war against the law of my mind, again, that inner man reality, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There is another law called the law of sin waging war against Paul's mind and heart, waging war against your mind and your heart. This is true for every believer in this room. There are echoes of Romans 6 in all of this. Because in our minds, we've just read, right? You have been set free from the dominion of sin. Sin no longer reigns over you. You don't have to do what you used to do. You don't have to listen to evil. You don't have to do it. And it's as though Paul says, I know that. And that's the problem. Yes, I've been set free from the dominion of sin. It no longer reigns over me. I don't have to do what I used to do. I don't have to listen. But sometimes I listen. And sometimes I do it. That's the problem. Paul's reality and the reality for every Christian is this. I know I'm free from the dominion of sin 
but I don't always feel free. I love God's law, but I still break it. I hate sin, but I still do it. Which is why Paul, in the very next verse, is going to cry out about his wretched state. He's going to cry out for deliverance, which is what we all feel in our bones as we are thinking about these realities. I know I'm free, but I don't always feel free. I love God's law, but I still break it. I hate sin, but I still do it. Wretched man, wretched woman that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? As Paul writes so beautifully in verse 24. When will this end? When will I finally be delivered from this, this internal war that we're talking about? Because it breaks my heart and it wrecks my life when I sin. It breaks my heart when I don't obey God's law and it produces bad things in my life when I don't obey God's law. When will I be delivered? Wretched man that I am. And then he leads us in verse 25 to thanksgiving and praise for the promises of God in Christ Jesus. All Paul can do at this moment is not look to himself, not look to his discipline, not look to his effort. He looks to Christ. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then I myself, he says, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So too do we. Paul's inner turmoil and his inner struggling and wrestling and even his despair that leads him to cry out, wretched man that I am, which is our experience too, makes the outside of us realities of the gospel incredibly precious. The fact that the promise of God's word is that something outside of us, namely Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension and imminent return saves what's wrong inside us. That's the only hope for sinners. Can't come from within. Verse 1 of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What marvelous words. More marvelous words have never been written than these. Even though, this is huge, even though final deliverance is in the future, we are free from condemnation now. In Christ. There's not a more important street level truth for your life as a Christian than that. You want to talk practical. You want to talk about something that's going to matter not just today, but tomorrow and Tuesday and every day after that. It's that reality. That though final deliverance is in the future, there is no condemnation now for those who trust in Christ. Verse 2, Paul says that we have been set free in Christ by the law of the spirit of life from the law of sin and death. And then in verses 3 and 4, he makes it clear that God has done what the law could never do. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, 
could never do, namely justify and save his people. When Moses gave the law to his people, to the people of Israel, he tells them at various points, notably in the book of Deuteronomy, do these things and you will live. If you keep these commands, you will live by them, live eternally. The problem is nobody keeps them. The law does not have power to save. The law does not have power to transform. The law is good and holy and upright. But it's because of our flesh and our frailty and our weakness that we are damned by the law. And so God had to do it. He had to do something that could never be done otherwise. He had to send his own son, you see that, in the likeness of sinful flesh. The reason it's worded that way is because Jesus was not sinful. He was truly man yet without sin. In the likeness of sinful flesh, right? He came for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh through the death that he died on the cross. He lived a perfect life as well, satisfying the law of God. We see that in verse 4. Sin is condemned in the flesh through the death of Christ and the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled by the life of Christ all in the place of the people of God. This is Paul's reason. The truth that it is the normal Christian experience to battle and struggle against the evil desires of our flesh for the rest of our lives makes people all kinds of uncomfortable. The truth that it is the normal Christian experience to battle our flesh for our entire lives on earth frankly frightens people sometimes in the church. Because we've so often been exposed to something that sounds quite different than that. That, well, you, you come to faith in Christ and everything's different. You're a new creation, which is true. But yet we still battle our flesh and our corruption until the resurrection. We generally concede that even with respect to Romans 7, it's exegetically, like understanding of the text-wise, it's right that this is our experience. We acknowledge that. We are happy to acknowledge that there is a battle a lot of times. We'll kind of wink at the Romans 7 reality, but to stare it in the face and call it what it is, is hard. Just keep in mind as you're reading these words in Romans 7 that this is Paul. Now, he's a normal guy, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, but this is the Apostle Paul. Save Jesus, arguably the preeminent theologian in the history of the church, right here, writing these words. Again, save Jesus, arguably the most influential figure in the history of the church. He's the writer of 13 of the 27 New Testament books. It's a lot. He is the preeminent church planter and missionary in the history of Christianity. So it's this guy that's writing these words, and he's telling us, man, I struggle. I struggle. Like, I really struggle. It's intense. What's going on inside of me is a mess. Paul is saying, I could be telling you one thing, 
that's true and then have something entirely different going on in my heart. Paul is saying that. There's turmoil, he's saying, in here and in here. And this, like, lightheartedly, right? Like, you can't help but think that if Paul was that honest on an application for a ministry position, he would never get the job. Seriously. Who would hire a guy like that? You sit him down for the interview, tell me about your Christian life. Well, um, I delighted in the law of God in my inner being, but I really struggle to obey it a lot of times. I want to do good things according to God's law, but I don't find myself doing those. And all those sinful things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing those a lot. So did I get the job, right? You can't imagine that being the case. We, like Paul, often find ourselves not doing what we want to do, but rather find ourselves doing the very things that we hate. We, like Paul, find that we have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We, like Paul, often find ourselves not doing the good we want, but continuing to do evil. And the reason for us, just like Paul, is because sin still dwells in all of us. Our corruption remains. Now, be really clear here. Do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, I want to be very clear, I am not saying that having sinful desires is okay. Like We need to be precise about this. Because there are people in our day today that will say that to only have the sinful desire is not sin. That's false, biblically. To desire sin is sin. To desire sin is wrong. It's not just once you act on it that it becomes wrong. It's wrong to desire it. We are just coming in alongside that reality and also saying biblically that the struggle is real and that the struggle is normal. But just because it's normal, it's not an excuse. And it's good that we all remember this in the church. If someone told us that we could stop sinning tomorrow, we would be over the moon about it. Can you imagine if somebody said you can stop sinning tomorrow completely and never know sin again? Every Christian from all time would say, sign me up, man. I can't wait. That's partly what I'm longing for. Like Paul, deliverance from this. We, like Paul, delight in the law of God in our inner being. And we, like Paul, see another law, the law of sin, waging war against our minds and our hearts. And we, like Paul, cry out for deliverance. And we, like Paul, can only look to Christ and then praise and thank God for Jesus. So four reflections. Four reflections on what this means just for our lives. Just track with me. Hopefully these will make sense. Reflection number one. I'm just going to state straightforwardly what we've been thinking about. We are at the same time saint and sinner. We are at the same time saint and sinner. So we are justified. And by justified, we mean declared righteous by God, reconciled to God, and therefore have peace with God forever. On the basis of what Christ has done, applied to us by faith, 
grounded in the grace of God, we have peace with God now and forever. That's what it means to be justified. And we still carry around this heavy burden called the state of sin. Inherent corruption in Adam. It's still here. We are in Christ, and yet we still carry around Adam's corruption. Throughout, this is important. Throughout our earthly lives, we will be 100% saint and 100% sinner at the same time. It's not like it's some sort of zero-sum game, right? Where like, at the point you're born again, it's like 50-50. You're sort of half saint, half sinner, and then it kind of goes back and forth throughout the course of your life where maybe if I'm really doing well, one day I'll be 80% saint and only 20% sinner. It doesn't work that way. We are for our entire lives 100% saint, 100% sinner. That will end when we die or when Christ returns. And then we will be 100% saint, period. The great wrestling and struggle sometimes, the paradox of our existence is that we are completely righteous in the eyes of God in Christ. We are secure and reconciled to our Heavenly Father. And yet, we so often still sin. We so often doubt that there's peace between us and God. We often feel like His enemy, though He has told us that we're His children. Welcome to being a sinner saint. That's part of it. Reflection number two. The internal war is our all-the-time experience. The internal war is our all-the-time experience. Meaning, you don't just fight this battle part-time. It's all the time. And the battle is epic. We don't always perceive it to be epic, but it's epic. The fight is really hard. Sometimes we don't perceive it to be. Talk about that in a minute, maybe. But it's hard. And like I said before, remember that you didn't have this fight on your hands before you were a Christian. People, a lot of times they're told in the church, like, come to Christ and your life will get a lot better. Come to Christ and your life will be easier. That's a lie. Now, eternally, it's an understatement, right? Eternally, in Christ, I mean, it's pleasures untold. With God forever, we get to see Christ as he is. It's going to be incredible. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive of how great it's going to be. But that's down the road. A lot of times people experience this when they come to Christ. My life actually got harder in a lot of ways. But then if you've always been told, well, come to Christ and it'll all go well, you're like, well, maybe it didn't take. Maybe it didn't work for me. Why does it get harder? Because you've got a new war on your hands. I used to sin and I didn't care. I mean, I might care based upon some notion of morality because like, well, I know it's wrong. I might care because it might cost me something in terms of social capital or it might cost me something in this life, but I really didn't care. But now I sin and it wrecks me. I experience this thing called conviction. 
I'm actually grieved when I sin. I never knew that before. I'm aware of things that I was never aware of before. I find myself having to be vigilant, having to be prayerful, having to fight like crazy when I never did before. I just kind of went with the flow. Think of what Paul is doing in his letter to the Romans, chapters 5 through 8. In Romans 5, he tells us basically about our new status in Christ. Romans 6, your new identity in Christ. Romans 7, your new battle. Romans 8, your new hope. Right? That's the flow of the letter. Now back to the the fighting piece. So sometimes in our experience, and this, this is all God's grace, sometimes it actually goes pretty well. Because God is giving tons of grace in a season. He gives us grace and we fight well against our sin, against our thoughts and against our desires. And we're encouraged as we should be by that. Sometimes God gives grace and we withstand temptation. And we should be encouraged by that. That God is at work in us. Sometimes we find ourselves in seasons where maybe temptation's there, but it's just kind of rolling off our our back in a way that it doesn't always. It's just, it's there, I'm aware of it, but it's just not, not grabbing me the same way. It's rolling off, and we should be thankful for that and encouraged by that. Thank God for a season like that. And then sometimes God gives grace in the form of the absence of temptation, just not experiencing it the same way. In that season, what we ought to do is, again, be thankful to God, acknowledge His grace in it, and be humble. Because so often, we're not. Like when it's going really well and we're not feeling the temptation, we're just like, man, I'm crushing it. Crushing it, man. And as a, a friend said recently, you know, so often our virtue is just an absence of temptation. It's true. Let's not think too highly of ourselves. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, you know this like I do. Sometimes the fight does not go well. Sometimes you're losing the battle, it feels like, in your experience. Maybe you're not as aware as you should be of sin. Maybe you're not as aware as you should be of your tendencies to sin. And so you find yourself sinning. Or maybe you are aware of your sin and your tendencies and the like. You feel it coming on. You try to fight it. You aim to get upstream of it, but yet you end up sinning. Maybe temptation comes upon you in an instant, out of nowhere, and you give in. You're sinning. Or maybe the temptation is just lingering around. It's just like right here in the background of my life all the time. You ever been there? Just won't let go. It's like it latches on and it won't let go. It chases after me and it won't let go. We can't seem to shake it. We're fighting and fighting and fighting, and sometimes it's like I'm fighting well, I'm fighting well, I'm fighting well, and then I'm falling. The battle is real. Reflection number three. Our remaining corruption haunts us. Reflection three. Our remaining corruption haunts us. So our sin grieves us. 
That's part of being a child of God. It's part of being redeemed. When we are confronted with how corrupt we really are, you, you have those moments like I do. Something happens in your life and boom. And you're like, my gosh, I had no idea that I was that wicked. You're exposed to how corrupt you really are. When we sin, or even maybe more pointedly, when we find ourselves sinning in that same way again, that same way that we marked it down, I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm not going to do it. And maybe weeks or months go by and it happens again. When that happens in our lives, undoubtedly, despair, hopelessness, and doubt come with that of all kinds. These feelings of grief and doubt and despair over our sin and our corruption, they well up within us throughout our life on earth. We are perpetually haunted by our feelings of unworthiness because we know we're not worthy. I mean, to feel unworthy is legitimate because we're not in ourselves. Our worthiness comes not from us. It comes from God's grace and God's love, God's favor shown to us in Christ. And in Christ, the beauty is the unlovable are made lovable. The ungodly are pronounced righteous. That's the good news piece. Martin Luther said it this way, and I think he's right. He said, here is the paradox at the heart of the Christian self-perception. A godly man feels sin more than grace, wrath more than favor, judgment more than redemption, close quote. Sounds like Paul in Romans 7. Sounds like Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he calls himself the foremost of sinners. Sounds like the tax collector in Luke 18. Remember him? Wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven but is beating his chest and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Sounds like David in many of the Psalms he wrote. Perhaps most pointedly in Psalm 51 where he talks about not only being conceived in iniquity and the fact that his sin is ever before him, but his heart is clearly broken over his sin. Reflection number four. This is how we'll close our time. The gospel of Christ is for us all the time. The gospel of Christ is for us all the time. So we've thought about how we're always saint and sinner. We've thought about how the internal wars are all the time experience. We've thought about how our internal, inherent, remaining corruption always haunts us. Well, the beauty is the gospel is for us all the time. So because of all of that, that we've already been considering, resting, trusting, believing, and hoping in what God has done for us in Christ is a permanent, ongoing part of the Christian life. It's not a one-time thing. We have been so harmed by talk of, you know, at one point in time, you make that decision and it's over. 
Again, believing, trusting, hoping, resting in Christ is your everyday task. It's your everyday calling as a Christian. We are always believing, always repenting, always trusting, always turning. That is the nature of being a Christian. There's a notion, not only have we been harmed by this kind of decisionism and revivalistic stuff, that's been harmful to the church in America. But we have been harmed by this kind of thinking that's prevalent, where like the cross and the gospel in my Christian experience are back there somewhere. Like I needed the cross, I needed that gospel to get in. I got in through the cross and the gospel, and now let's move on to other stuff. Nothing could be more harmful to the Christian life and to a believer than that. The cross is not behind us. It is over us and near us and ever before us. That's true on your worst day, and it's just as true on your best one. It matters not how you think you're doing. You need Christ and his cross and his life just as much on your worst and your best day. What the enemy does is he tells us on our worst day that we're unworthy. And then on our best day, he makes us think that we're fine on our own. Brothers and sisters, the reality is this. Not only is the cross always over us, near us, and ever before us, we never move beyond the gospel. We never move beyond our need for Christ, ever. That is not what is ever meant by moving on from elementary doctrines. Doesn't mean we move on from the gospel. We live in that thing called the gospel. So this means a lot for us as Christians and as a church in our own experience. Like These truths that we're thinking about right now, it means a lot for our corporate gathering. So many in the room have probably observed this or have talked to me about it or Ron or whoever. But we set up our corporate gatherings and we make the gospel and what Christ has done for us basically the focus of the whole thing. It permeates everything intentionally from the welcome to the benediction. That's why it's like you come in the door and whoever's leading service, we talk about it. It's like, look, greet everybody. And it's like, hey, welcome. You're a wretch and you need Christ. That's why we're all here. You know, we're not playing games. We're not coming to just try to make ourselves better. We're coming because we need what only Christ can provide. And that's why you're here. That's why I'm here. And so this means that the gospel needs to be applied primarily to the redeemed in a corporate gathering. So there's a notion out there that the gospel is for the non-believer. Like we we need to present the gospel to the non-Christians that maybe show up on a Sunday, but all the believers, they got the gospel. Wrong. The gospel is applied to the saints in the corporate gathering. And of course, any visitors who are with us are going to hear it too. It makes you think, you know, about how desperately these realities too, not just the corporate gathering part, but how desperately we need the church always. We weren't meant to live the Christian life alone. You go into the New Testament looking for that, you'll find it nowhere. We were made by God and intended by God to live life in the local church. We desperately need each other, not just on the Lord's day. The ordinary means are 
important word and sacrament and prayer and song and all those things. But we desperately need the saints, the fellowship of the saints on the Lord's day and other days. We need to be pointed by the saints over and over again to Christ and what he's done for us. That's one of our great responsibilities in watching over each other is to, yes, watch over one another and talk honestly about sin and keep one another from sin and harm, but it's also to remind one another of Christ and the gospel always. It wouldn't be a bad thing, right? I mean, it could be worse if every time people from CBC get together, it's just like, hey, just remember, Christ is your righteousness. You know, It's a good thing to say. I mentioned earlier the the outside of us realities of the gospel and why they're so sweet in light of this internal struggle. We'll often use the language here that the gospel is objective outside of us. The theological term through history is extranos, outside of us, right? We also will say that the gospel is a declarative reality, meaning it's done, it's finished. Those things are critical, and that's why regardless of how we're feeling, regardless of how we're doing, there is such a thing called peace with God. Because peace with God is not tethered to you. Peace with God is tethered to something outside of you that is unshakable, that never changes, something that's permanent. The good news of Christ is that by faith alone, grounded in the grace of God alone on the basis of Christ's work, we are as unshakably and permanently righteous in the eyes of God as Christ is. Regardless of how I'm feeling, regardless of how I'm doing. Because if it depends on how we're feeling or how we're doing, we can call it decent news, but not good. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Your, your life is hard. Maybe you're in a dark season of life and you preach the gospel to yourself in an effort to get the darkness to lift. You ever been there? Not doing well. I'm despairing for whatever reason. It might be silly. It might be legit. But I'm despairing. I preach the gospel to myself in an effort, in an attempt to try to get the darkness to lift. Well, sometimes it does lift. I remind myself of the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for me, and I am encouraged in my heart. But then sometimes it doesn't lift. Sometimes in our experience, we preach the gospel to ourselves and the darkness just sits on us. It doesn't go anywhere. Which is why it is the greatest news in the world that even when we preach the gospel to ourselves and cry out to the Lord and yet still feel the darkness, the love of Christ toward us, the power of Christ for us, the work of Christ in our place remain unchanged. Christ is our hope and stay. I've recently been exposed to a song. I promise I'm landing the plane. I've recently been exposed to a song called My Savior Left His Throne Above. It's very good. The last two verses read this way about what Christ has done for us. Such is the nature of the good news. Listen to these words about your Savior. He kept his father's every word. The law he followed perfectly. So all God's pleasure he secured. All this and more he earned for me. Because his righteous life is mine and all his merits now I own. I am a child of God on high. I am adopted, loved, and known. Amen.
When Jesus left his heavenly home, his face was set on Calvary, the steepest hill he climbed alone. All this and more he did for me. Because he died once for all time and bore the curse of death and hell, final forgiveness here is mine. So it is finished. All is well. Yes, it is finished and all is well. The internal war is hard. We are all weary from the fight. But because of Christ, there is peace in the midst of the battle. And because of Christ, there is hope in the midst of the struggle. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in need of your spirit, in need of your mercy and grace, in need for you to work in us. Continue to teach us your truth. Continue to sanctify us by your truth. Continue to transform us and conform us into the image of Christ, we pray. And we ask, Father, that you would work in us and sustain our faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would draw near to us and remind us of your love for us. Help us to cast all of our anxieties and our fears and our doubts and our wrestlings upon you because you care for us. We pray that you would give us grace so that we might strengthen our weak knees and our feeble hands and that we might strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We know that you are a loving father who disciplines your children to enable us to share in your holiness. We thank you for all of these truths. We pray that you would drive them deep into our hearts. We pray that you would meet us now in the table and that we would feed on Christ by faith. And we pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.